back to your last big mistake. If you're like most of us, grateful probably isn't the first thing to come to mind when remembering our past slip-ups. I'm Brad from Heinemann. Mistakes are part of learning. How do we address our own mistakes and model our responses? How do we create a mistakes-welcoming classroom? In her new book, Risk, Fail, Rise, A Teacher's Guide to Learning from Mistakes, author Colleen Cruz invites us to be more aware of the mistakes we make so we can learn to avoid the unnecessary ones and learn how to respond to useful ones. In turn, this will help our classrooms be a place of positive risk-taking and productive failure for all students. I started my conversation with Colleen by asking how she approaches such a daunting topic as our mistakes. I came up with the idea of for the book because I was in my work at the Reunion Writing Project. We do these uh, Saturday reunions where we do these free days of workshops for teachers. And one of the workshops that I did that I sort of did out of a feeling of frustration that I that I think a lot of educators were feeling at the time. Just we are just doing it all wrong. And so I did this workshop called um, it's, it's All Our Fault, which was actually the work, working title of this book. It's all our fault. Ten mistakes that we're making today that we can, you know, stop doing tomorrow. And the landslide of teachers who came to that workshop shocked me. Um, and it was just really well received. And the conversations that I had kept coming after it made me realize that like, this is a conversation we don't spend a lot of time having. There's a lot of outsiders who talk about the mistakes that we make, but it usually comes from an attack phase, not an inside and, and an understanding of why and how these mistakes are made. And I just started digging into my own, um, mistakes as an educator and as a human, quite frankly, and started to wonder, um, if you know me, you know, I'm a research person. I started just reading a lot of research and realizing there's a whole body of research on mistakes that I was completely unaware of as an educator. It sort of surprised me that I had never been formally instructed into mistake making. I had known about growth mindset, but that's not the same exactly. They're, they're in similar spheres. And so I, as I dug into it from my own personal curiosity, I just discovered that there was so much to be said and so much to explore in terms of mistakes in education and not just studying the mistakes that students make, which I think most of us as educators are hyper aware of, but rather the mistakes that we make as educators and as school systems make. And that just became like sort of a five-year odyssey of of living in the land of mistakes, um, <laughs> which is a weird place for those who love me and are in my life to be in because I'm constantly analyzing now. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like as much as teaching and learning has mistakes as part of it, I hadn't seen much discussion or study purely on mistakes. You sort of take that thinking right into calling for a need for mistakes welcoming classroom culture. What does that look like? Well, I would say that in the main, it's not what it currently looks like. I would I would say that if if I were to interview a thousand teachers, a thousand teachers would say that they are a classroom where it's safe and welcoming to mistakes. But 
when we scratch beneath the surface, not really. Like, are we have these entire structures and systems? Uh, I don't think put together by individual teachers, although that is true that we do put in systems that block mistakes. But if you just look at something simple like grading, for example, grading to me is the largest obstacle to a mistake welcoming culture. We grade people on their um, ability to meet standards of excellence. And you cannot be excellent without making mistakes. But at the same time, the person who gets the highest grade is the person who makes the least mistakes. (laughs) So there's a way in which we actually discourage kids in the learning process from making mistakes if they want to get the cookie, aka the A or the four Mm. or whatever the rubric is. And so to me, the mistakes welcoming culture is really about looking across all of your systems, all of your structures in your classroom and seeing if there are ways, usually unintentionally, that we're not uh, making it possible or encouraging for kids to make mistakes or even ourselves to make mistakes. You know, when you think of when teachers are observed, it's usually for evaluation. Uh, Rarely are teachers observed to just see what they're up to or to give them compliments. And so to me, a mistakes welcoming school, mistakes welcoming classroom looks at all of the structures, um, all of the systems, everything from the materials that you use to the language that you use. And you have to ask yourself, is this, is this a place where risk is expected and encouraged? Um, I'm absolutely a fan of Maxine Green's work who said, we can't promise kids safe classrooms but we can create classrooms that encourage risk. And uh, I think that that that's really what I'm after there. And, and one of the beautiful things about how you've put the book together is as you help us think through each of these sections, you've got very practical examples. You've got scenarios that you've laid out and then you're thinking with those scenarios. And it's just, it's tremendously helpful to sort of have that juxtaposed to some of the thinking that you've laid out as well. In the first part of the book in essay one, you write about how not all mistakes are graded equal. You reference the work of Eduardo Brasino's four types of mistakes. Could you talk a little bit about what those four types are? Yeah. So um, Brasino writes a lot about um, what he's most known for is the performance zone and the learning zone. And yet when I was studying his work, I, I found this essay that he wrote about the four types of mistakes and this idea that not all mistakes are equally awesome and wonderful to make. Teachers are will always say like, oh, all mistakes are great. But like, that's not actually true. Like nobody wants a brain surgeon to whoops, drop their scalpel. <laughs> like, like uh, not all mistakes are great. And, and I think it's important for us as educators to acknowledge that we should avoid mistakes that we can avoid and we should embrace mistakes and go for mistakes that are helpful. And so um, Rosigno talks about different types of mistakes, one being the sloppy mistake, which is the, I left my coffee on the counter on my way to work kind of mistake. Not a big deal. It's not going to ruin anybody. I mean, it might ruin your day, but it's not, it's not going to hurt anybody other than maybe you'll have a headache by noon. But um, that's a sloppy mistake. And we make those all the time. And those are the mistakes we tend to forget 
almost as soon as we make them. And I think that they aren't things that we need to spend a whole lot of time worrying about. But he does talk about the good mistakes and the and he breaks out the good mistakes into how much you learn from them. And um, so there's the what he calls the aha mistake, which is the kind of mistake where you're doing something and you didn't even realize what you didn't know until you made the mistake. So it's in the mistake that you realize something. So the example I give in the book is when you're baking and you accidentally put a cup of salt into something instead of a cup of sugar. That's when you realize just how much sugar and salt look alike. I mean, you consciously know that, but you don't realize it until you make this mistake. And um, that's a mistake where it's unplanned you're doing something else entirely and you make this realization. But then there's the stretch mistake. And the stretch mistake is the mistake that we want to make, that kids want to make, that humans totally want to make. These are the mistakes, the sexy mistakes, the mistakes that you're like, yes, you know, practice makes perfect kind of mistakes. And that's when you're taking a risk and you know you're taking a risk. The first time you ride a bike, the first time you make a speech on stage, the first time you decide to write a book about a topic that you've never written before about mistakes, um, like all it's a stretch. And as you're stretching, you make mistakes, but you're expecting it. Like, you know, it's going to happen. And in that you learn your limits and you learn certain skills, but the worst kind of mistake are the high stakes mistakes. So those are the surgical mistakes. Those are the surgeon with the scalpel. And it's when somebody is doing something that is high risk and could cause great damage if you if you make a mistake. And we want to avoid those mistakes. We want to avoid the sloppy ones too, but we really want to avoid the high stakes mistakes. And I think for teachers, we are often in the land of risk in terms of high stakes mistakes. And, and our kids often feel that the mistakes that they are making as learners are in the high stakes mistake world. And they shouldn't, you know, they should be more experiencing the aha and stretch mistakes. And I think as a, I think all people, but particularly educators, because our business is learning, I think knowing and being able to identify mistakes and which mistakes you can just let roll off of your back and which mistakes you really should avoid and which mistakes you should run towards with open arms, I think it really helps you to not put them all in the same bucket. And sort of related to that, in the same section of the book, you, you note the significance of intent and impact, especially on students, uh, you know, on students rather, I should say, and especially in anti-racist work. Could you sort of expand a little bit more about the significance and the importance of intent and impact and sort of how you write about how we can best take how we can best model taking responsibility. Yeah, I think I first learned the language um, and developed an understanding about um, anti-racist work and intent and impact from my colleagues who focus on anti-racism related to anti-blackness in particular. As a, a light-skinned uh, Latina, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about like where my privilege lies and and thinking about how there's a way that we can give ourselves a pass um, because we didn't intend to do something. And I think that's true in all of our lives, like in our relationships with our friends and our loved ones and our students. 
we do something, we mess up, and then we feel bad about it. And we find ourselves saying, I didn't mean to. Um, But that becomes exponentially more troublesome when it comes to acts of racism. I think very few people, I mean, I think even probably virulent racists would struggle to say they are actively racist. Like, I I think somebody who is a Klan's person would struggle to say that they're racist. They would say that they um, believe in their, they're proud of their whiteness or something like that. Um, And it's an interesting note that even virulent racists will not own their intention. Like they will say, I didn't mean to, even when they're doing something horrific, they'll say that they were meaning to do something really great. And that's why separating out intent and impact is so, so key when it comes to all things that we, we do these, we mispronounce a a child's name, for example. Um, And I, I've certainly people mispronounce my name all the time. And I think you know, when people were like, well, I didn't mean to, I never think anybody intentionally tried to mispronounce my name. But when people do that, and then they go into a big long spiel about their intention and not not checking in on the victim of that, I think that that compounds the mistake with interest. And so thinking about when all of us we, you know, we swim in the waters of racism when we are making mistakes and we will, um, that are racist, we need to stop and we need to not focus on our purpose, um, that, that we did not meet, but rather who are the victims, who are the people that we harmed and what might they be feeling and concentrate on that. And it's an interesting mindset for yourself to to be thinking about, just assume that unless you're pure evil, unless you're like spawn of Satan, you did not mean to do it. And so that should be a, a foregone conclusion that instead you have to ask yourself, what might this person be feeling? If you're not sure, you could just ask them. Um, but just like, I am really looking at what I just said or what I just did and how that affected the person. And I think it's really important for kids to see us modeling the intent versus impact piece, because I think from a very young age, American culture in particular has a focus on apologizing and just really deep regret. And I'm so sorry, almost to the point, like we, we reflexively want kids to say, I'm sorry. And with my own two children, I have two children who are elementary school age. One of the things that um, my wife and I have taught them from an early age is, yes, apologize, but then follow it up with, and how can I make that better? Like, that's just, that's what you have to say. So if you punch your brother as he's walking by, which may or may not have happened this morning, um, (laughs) (laughs) and he responds, you say, oh, I'm sorry, how can I make that better? Because the focus really shouldn't be on you, the person who made the mistake, it should be on the person who was impacted by the mistake. And you have some really good examples in the book on that section about checking in with the victim of an example. You you have a very personal uh, example that you write about something that you did. And there's just uh, there's a lot of great scenarios and examples right there that people can read more about in that. In that same section, you call our attention to the power dynamic between teacher and student when thinking about impact. Why is it so important for us to really have more awareness there in that power dynamic? 
Yeah. So the, this, uh, the power dynamic, a teacher's carrying the blame of all of society's ills and, and feel yet at the same time being treated very much like second class citizens makes it sometimes feel like teachers are powerless. Like they, they often feel like the families have the power or the child has the power. Um, when we spend enough time in teachers lounges before the pandemic, and it's real. We don't have the kind of power in society that we should, considering the position that educators hold in terms of forming our citizenry. Like there isn't as much respect for teachers as should be. And so that feeling of powerlessness and very much being pawns in the system, like teachers rarely have any say over their budget, rarely have any say over their standards in many school districts don't even have a say over their curriculum or even their schedule. Um, so in many ways, teachers are in fact powerless, except in one really crucial area, and that is with our students. And that for many, many students and their families, we are the most powerful figure in their lives. And, and for many of them, we are their most direct contact to government agencies. For um, some families, we're their only contact with any sort of government agency uh, for public school teachers on a regular basis. And for kids, sometimes the teacher even outranks the, you know, whoever their caregiver is, their parent or their grandparent or whoever is caring for them in terms of power. And I think that we need to acknowledge that because power carries great responsibility and also means that some of the choices that we make in terms of how we respond to mistakes are exponentially larger. Like when we think of ourselves, when our colleague makes a comment to us that's critical, it does not carry the same weight as when our administrator does. And so for our, our students that we serve, there is very much that dynamic of when we criticize them, it has power for both good or bad. The, the criticism can build them up and, and make them grow, or it can shrink them down in a way that their friend on the schoolyard making that same comment wouldn't have. And I think teachers, understandably, um, when you look at the systems of power, don't always own or feel comfortable with the fact that we are powerful. Um, even if we only acknowledge that we're powerful within the sphere of influence of our of our classrooms. Um, we have a tremendous amount of power in our in our students' lives, and and all of us are aware that one great teacher, one great interaction with um, a teacher in your life can make or break your whole academic and possibly career. But the reverse is also true. And you can have somebody who makes a flippant comment and uses their power in a way that is demeaning or damaging, and it could completely derail a student who would otherwise be successful. And I do think it's easy for us to feel powerless for a lot of really good reasons, but I think it's also important for us to name that power that we do have. You noted a second ago just how much teachers are shouldering right now, especially as we record this in a continued remote teaching scenario because of the pandemic. You write about in section three of the book, the hero teacher and the martyrs. They're often described as taking taking care of their students before taking care of themselves. And you write that while that is noble, that this isn't good for instruction. Why? 
This is a really hard one because I think a lot of educators call what we do a calling, a vocation, maybe something spiritual. And I think like I was raised in a religious tradition. Um, there, there's a feeling of when you are called to do something, you want to sacrifice everything in order to do it. And I think we have these romantic notions of people who give up everything for students. And, you know, you just think of like name three movies, you know, that star teachers, um, they almost always show the teacher as a self-sacrificing character. And that's, that's where so many, um, almost like Peace Corps style teaching programs come from is this savior complex that we have. And that is fine for like a quick fix, but we know that the best teachers and the students who are served by them usually have teachers who are in their careers for a long time. And you can't last having that sort of no sleep, no food, no social life for more than a couple of years. And we we are seeing teachers just leaving. And they were leaving before we were we were hitting a teaching shortage before. And um, now in the pandemic, it, I feel like just apocryphally, I don't know because I haven't seen the numbers, but I know from my friends that I know people who are leaving the profession right now who are amazing teachers. And it's in large part because they are pushing too hard. They are trying to do too much. And ultimately, they're wearing themselves out. And secondarily, that's like sort of like the big picture. The big picture is this notion of when we wear ourselves out, we become the husk of the great educator we once were. And it doesn't do the kids any good. It doesn't do us any good. But secondarily, on a day-to-day level, when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're distracted by current events, we can't help but make mistakes. Like the best way to not make a mistake is to fully focus on the moment and and be mindful and just be really in the moment. And that's very hard to do if your basic needs are met, not met, if your emotional needs are not met. And I think, you know, heal or heal thyself. I'm really bad about this. Like I I know that if I point to the last mistake I made and I trace back to my self-care, almost always my mistakes go back to a lack of self-care that I, you know, I didn't get enough sleep or I didn't remember to eat or I didn't take that time to get on the phone with that friend. And so I think that it feels counterintuitive, but the more you care for yourself, the more you can care for your children. And that is romantic as it is to imagine a teacher like, you know, living in the one room schoolhouse, sleeping on the ground just to teach, you know, her seven children by the fireplace, like this, this image that we have, it's really sweet and and everything, but like how high a quality of that education is it? And so I think, yeah, I think all of us have I guess I'm talking to the psychology of us as educators that we, in order to best serve our students, we really do need to take care of ourselves. If we really don't want to screw it up and they have this one chance at childhood, um, we do have to take care of ourselves. You've got some great advice in the section specifically around setting boundaries and uh, and some of the self-care 
that you teach us and you in particular have at the self care self-assessment tool you can sort of explain a little bit about the self-assessment tool because i i actually spent a lot of time reading that myself and i was i enjoyed that <laughs> how'd, how'd you do uh okay a <laughs> <laughs> lot to learn <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing the self-assessment tool because the way i came up with the tool is a little personal but i basically went back and looked at some of my mistakes that i wish i could take back. I regret the impact um, that they had. And when I traced them back, they were like the silliest things. Like I had a toothache and so I was annoyed by it and I should have gone to the dentist. And I don't know why I thought I would get a cookie for not going to the dentist. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know like who I was serving. Um, but yeah, so the, the ch- it's, a, it's a, just a way of looking at all the corners of your life. You know, there's the obvious eating and sleeping, which I think is really pathetic that that has to be a thing that's on a checklist. But like, I have more than once been like, yeah, when's the last time I've slept for more than five hours? Um, But there's also things like social life and, and joy um, and pleasure. And I think that we do need to make room for those things in our lives. And I, and I do think that the other aspect of that checklist is also our kids are watching us and we can tell them all we want that they need to eat healthy and sleep well and, and spend time with friends and stuff. But if they know we don't do that, we're their biggest hero and that's who they're going to look to. So we're perpetuating this, this system of wearing these great people out. Um, And so we are, um, we need to do it to take care of ourselves and we need to do it to take care of our students. And we also need to do it to model it um, for our students. It feels like this relates really closely to self-care. You write about fear and you say it makes us vulnerable to mistakes. How can we be more aware of our fear so that it doesn't take over our teaching? Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, aren't we like this year just feels like it's all about fear. Um, so that was, I think that fear is a huge driver of mistakes. Uh, we frequently decide to do or not do something based on fear. I mean, if you look at the recent elections and who people voted for or chose not to vote for, or like a former student of mine who I'm friends with on social media commented that he you know, just opted out of voting for the the president. He did all the rest, but he didn't vote for the president. And it all stems from fear. And I think as a society, we don't like to talk about fear. I think people think of fear as a sign of weakness. And I think anything that we don't talk about becomes fodder for mistake making. Like if we don't willingly discuss fears big and small, they get power over us. And so if I'm afraid of appearing stupid um, in front of other people, then I'm going to pretend to know things I don't know, and then consequently teach things that are perhaps wrong. Or if I'm afraid of losing control of my classroom, then I might overreact to a student's behavior as opposed to teaching into it. 
And so I think it's important to know what your personal fears and your personal triggers are, and not just in terms of teaching, although that's important. Like I know that one of the things that when I still was in the classroom was a, a fear of mine was a fear of um, kids losing control. Um, and just, you know, cause I, I definitely was a, a project based kind of teacher and I'd worry that people would walk in and think it was chaos. And so knowing that was important because I could anticipate what I would say. I would almost have lines in my um, back pocket that I could repeat when somebody would ask me like, what's your class doing? They're all over the place. But then there's also fears that are not classroom based that seep into your classroom, like fear of humiliation or um, physical fear. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the fears that we have as educators around school shootings, around pandemic, I mean, actual life and death fears that are 100% real. Um, there are just ways that those are going to lead us to make mistakes. They're going to lead us to say things that we would regret or to do things that we would regret. And I think spending some time just reflecting on what your fears are, both professionally and just in your life, makes you understand when you find yourself, you know, avoiding something like, you know, I will avoid going down to my apartment basement room after dark because I don't like what could be down there. I'm a big Stephen King fan. And like, I just, I know that I know that I have a thing about monsters that aren't real. And I know that, and I, it's like awesome that I'm admitting it right now on a podcast, but like at two in the morning, I will not go into the laundry room. And so knowing that means that I have to make plans for when I'm going to do my laundry, if I need it done by a certain point. So as an educator thinking about what are the things that you are most afraid of personally and professionally? And then when you get close to those areas, rather than avoiding them, you can either edge into them or get the support you need to, to make them go away. You also write about how classroom texts can be co-teachers in this work. How so? I think all texts that we bring into our classroom have multiple purposes. I think that there's the explicit purpose of the text that we bring. And then there's also the implicit purpose. Um, I think the brilliant minds who um, started Disrupt Text talk a lot about this notion of how we are constantly giving messages to our students in the text that we, we bring. And so when certain voices are heard and other voices are not, we are explicitly giving a message. And it's also true when we're we're thinking just it's 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 true across everything from um from race to class to gender and it's also true around attitudes around mistakes and if we're only sharing stories of triumph if we're only sharing feel good stories or success stories we are also showing kids that the only ways that you can experience success in life is by triumph. And I think it's important that when we look at the nonfiction texts that we bring, the biographies, the historical accounts, but also the fiction that we bring, that not everything has a happy ending, not every mistake ends well, not every story ends at the resolution. I think that those are all those are all really crucial. And I think, I mean, we look at our current events now, whether we're thinking about the elections um, or the pandemic um, or anything that's happening in your local news, 
I think it's really interesting to bring those into the classroom and not just study them for the resolution, but to study them in terms of mistakes along the way. It's important to note that while the book is for K-12, it really is about the teachers. Can you talk a little bit about how this book is really about the mistakes we as teachers are making in our response to students? It's um, a misconception teachers have about this book is that this book is about kids and it's actually about them, which is not really a great selling point. Um, but part of it is that. And then the other thing is that most of what happens with kids' mistakes is actually it's our response to the mistakes that makes them either willing or unwilling to make them again. I think we often hand that off to the to the kid and say that their unwillingness to make mistakes is because of their not understanding growth mindset as opposed to when you make a mistake, how does the person you're making the mistake in front of respond to it? Do they respond with grace? Do they respond with empathy? Do they respond with teaching or do they snap at you or dig into you? We'll wrap up with this. I noted this uh, earlier in our conversation that the book comes with a lot of lessons in the back of the book. Could you just sort of talk us through some of the lessons? You've got a a couple in there in, in particular on intent versus impact. So I just wondered if you could just sort of walk us through some of those lessons. Yeah. So when I was when I was piloting the book, I I actually originally was thinking about just teaching about mistakes to um, students and like almost like a half and half. One one half of the book would be about teachers and us learning about our own mistakes, and then the other half would be how do we share this knowledge with students. And eventually, it ended up being like thinking about lessons, and so. While the whole book has sections throughout it where I talk about how we would address these things with students, I have um, several lessons at the back, and they're focused on different age groups. The The book is, is K-12, so there's younger elementary grade and then upper elementary, middle school, high school lessons. And so some of the things that I was thinking about was just like one of the first ones, which I think is so, so big, is understanding the word mistake um, that I do think part of our problem as a culture with mistakes is our language around them and the way we conflate mistake with sin. I'm sure there's a better word than sin, intentional wrongdoing. Um, But a mistake is an unintentional thing, whereas a sin or an intentional wrongdoing, you knew that you were going to do that. Like when you punch your brother in the face, that's not, whoops, my fist hit his nose. It's you actually meant to do that, that whole intention thing. Whereas a mistake, the intention is the thing. And so teaching kids directly about what mistakes are opens up the classroom for that, how to study it. Um, and then if, as we talked about earlier, there's there's a session on impact versus intent. And it does look different for little ones than it does for big guys. And you can get much deeper um, with that. But one of my favorite lessons is just the idea of collecting mistakes. I have a whole section on on this idea of mistake boxes and mistake resumes and almost like, you know, it's all about transparency. It's about teaching kids that putting things out on on the table and discussing them is is part of what makes something powerful. Um and so it explicitly goes into how we can address those things. I do think it's important and I say this in the book, but I think it's important to mention that all of this of course requires a a practitioner who knows their students because I do think 
knowing kids' experiences, knowing possible trauma that they might be experiencing. You know, these are things you want to tread lightly and knowing your kids, it would be the first step before you you jumped into them. Thanks to author Colleen Cruz for her time today. Her new book, Risk, Fail, Rise, A Teacher's Guide to Learning from Mistakes, is available now from Heinemann.com. You can follow Colleen Cruz on Twitter. For a link for that and for a link about the book and a blog from the book, visit blog.heinemann.com for more. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.